For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, so we have been in the book of James, and the theme of the book of James that we've been talking about every week is really, what does it look like to be a mature Christian, to live in action with the principles taught by Jesus Christ in the Scriptures? And James has given them examples like being restrained in speech, being wise about how you talk to people, being careful not to unnecessarily offend people, and realizing the power of the spoken word, that God's wisdom is not like our wisdom, that God values things differently than we do. He values relationship over money. He values kindness and patience over aggression. Uh, He values an other-centered perspective, and it comes so naturally to us to be selfish and self-centered. And so there's this backward wisdom of God that he's talked about. Last week, we talked about this idea that if we're going to really live for Christ and we're going to live according to God's priorities, that's going to bring us into tension with our culture. That people are going to look at the way that we live our lives and they're going to say, why aren't you living like everyone else? Why don't you value the things that everyone else values? And that that could create awkward moments and and even conflicts. Because the world system is not in harmony with who God is. And tonight, we're going to talk about how the mature Christian, according to James, brings God into their decision-making process, which is sort of an interesting thing to think about. How do we bring God into our decision-making process, especially some of the more important decisions, the big decisions? Who should I date? You know, dating is not the same as marriage, but it's on the path. And some of you are in a situation where you would really like to be in a dating relationship with someone. And what are the principles that you would follow? How do you bring God into that decision-making process? I got news for you. No dating in the Bible. Didn't exist back then. But there are principles that can be used and understood to help us process through and, and bring God's wisdom and his values into a relationship like that. A big question, who should I marry? This is, should be, the second most, more, most important decision that you make in your life. It should be a permanent decision. It should be something that really impacts the course of your life. You want to marry someone who is going to be a challenge to you, who's going to be an encouragement to you, who's going to be valuing the same things that you value. It's going to have a huge impact on the way that you raise your kids, what your retirement looks like, all these different aspects of the course of your life and what you do. What should I do for a career? You're going to spend a third of your life working and a third of it sleeping. So it's a huge portion of what do you do? What is your impact on the world? How much money are you going to make? Where are you going to live? All of these questions are huge questions. And God says we have access to his mind, his wisdom, that he wants to give us guidance. And he wants us to use his priorities, his values, to guide us in this decision-making process. 
even a question like, what does my retirement look like? Are you going to retire to Florida and play golf and pinochle for 16 hours a day until you die? That's the dream for a lot of people. How do relationships, how does love, how does connection, how does service, how do those things play into your plans like this? God says that, you know, this life is about giving to others. And so his ways will look very different from the default sort of average ways that we're told that we should live. Being a mature Christian, James is saying, is about bringing God's values into their decision-making process. Now, there's an old SNL skit that some of you will recognize because you're old like me. And others of you will be like, this is uh, a skit where Sally Field was hosting. You might know her as Forrest Gump's mom. (laughs) And uh, she is this really prayerful woman, and she prays and prays and prays, and she prays about everything and brings God into every situation in her life. And Phil Hartman, who you might know as the voice of Troy McClure in Simpsons, shows up as Jesus, and he feels like she might be praying too much. I pray to you all the time. (laughs) I know. (laughs) That's why I've come to talk to you. Shall we sit down? Okay. Oh, I'm filled with gladness. I'm filled with it. I'm just filled. (laughs) My heart is singing. Tina. Yes. I listen to everyone's prayers, and yes. each prayer is answered in its own way. Yes. Yes. And I was wondering if you would try to not pray so much. Well, well now I I thought you liked me to pray as much as possible. How shall I put this? If you could concentrate your prayers on just the most important things, you know, life and death, temptation, and save the prayers like, Dear Jesus, be with me as I vacuum the stairs. Dear Jesus, fill me with your spirit as I sponge off the slip covers. Things like that. It would just make things a lot simpler, Tina. You, you mean that I... But I shouldn't have asked you to help Blair with her algebra test. Uh, no, actually, algebra is going to be very important to Blair later on. That's actually okay. Then what? I'm confused. I'm confused now. I am. Tina, Tina, all I'm saying is prayers like, please don't let the rice get sticky, you know. I mean, do you really need my help with stuff like that? See, (laughs) 
I always think about that actually. When, that made a big impression of me, apparently, because whenever I read a passage like this, I think about that skit. Because, you know, it's this idea of like, okay, I want you in my life, God, but like, I don't want to be one of those people who pray about the rice not being sticky. Like, like, what is it? How do you bring God into your life? You know, on one hand, the Bible says pray without ceasing, right? That we should always be connected with God and we should always be talking to God. But, you know, how does that work itself out? What are the things and what are, what are the ways that we should approach our decision-making processes and how do we bring God into those in a way that's meaningful? Well, James says in James chapter 4, 13, he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, this is a really interesting passage because he's talking about somebody who wants to move to another city start a business and make a profit. And he's obviously critical of them wanting to do that. And so what is the problem here? Is the problem that they want to move to another city? That doesn't seem like that's necessarily a moral issue. People might have good reasons to move. Uh, that is a kind of decision you would want to bring God into in your life. But that's not necessarily a bad decision. Starting your own business, is that the problem? No, there's no reason to think from the Bible that being a business owner is a moral problem in and of itself. Making a profit? No. There's no reason to think that that in and of itself is a problem either. Any one of these things could be, think, these things could be fine. The tension that James is bringing into this situation is that if you do those things and you don't bring God into the process, you're being a fool. He says, you're being an arrogant fool by making these huge life decisions that can have a vast impact on your relationship with God and your relationship with other people without bringing God and his wisdom into that process. God's priorities are not the same as ours. And so we want to look at these things from the perspective of what God values, Moving to another city may be fine. What are the reasons we might move to another city? Make more money, get a better job, a better climate, especially if you live in Ohio. Uh, a more prestigious job, that might be a reason. We might want to get away from some people. And again, none of those things are necessarily things we would point to and say, evil, 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 evil. This is life. This is how we live. These are the kinds of things. These are the kinds of decisions that we need to make. And I wouldn't look at any of one of those things and say, well, God hates that. Getting away from annoying people. Moving to another city, the things that God would probably want us to weigh more carefully, though, would be, would we move because that would put us in a place where we could serve others more? 
Is that something that moving would enable us to do? Would, it move, would we move to another city so that we can be closer to friends and to family? Would we move to another city to be able to have a more meaningful impact for good in the world with the work that we do? You see, what we could do here is we could line all of these things up and there's nothing on here that's a crime. There's nothing on here that is bad in and of itself. But the thing that James is bringing tension to is this question of which of these columns carry more weight? What would be the major reason for uprooting your life and making a change? And are those reasons more self-centered reasons or are they more other-centered reasons? Are they more in line with the wisdom of the world system like we talked about last week, or are they more in line with the priorities of God? A decision like moving to another city could be exactly what God wants us to do, or it could be the worst kind of decision that would lead us toward a more selfish life. It's a huge decision. And how we weigh out that decision is what James is really pointing to. Let's look at the second one, starting your own business. It'd be great to have the freedom to be your own boss. That's really attractive to a lot of people. Make a name for yourself. You know, be someone important in the community. Make more money. These are things that are attractive to us, and they are valid reasons for wanting to start your own business. Again, not evil in and of themselves. You hate your boss. You don't want to work for anyone else anymore. I mean, hate's not good, but not wanting to work for a terrible boss, not an evil desire. Or you want to start your own business so that you have more time, more freedom, more flexibility in your schedule so that you can spend that time in community, building relationships with others. Spend more time doing the things of God and engaging in things that matter in eternity. Building people up and serving in the community. Again, do you want to maybe start your own business because it will enable you to do a job that has more meaning for you and makes more sense that you would be able to spend your time helping people? What are the priorities and how are they weighed out? Making a profit, you might just want better stuff. It's not a bad thing to want better stuff. It's not bad to want personal security and comfort. It's not bad to want a more prestigious life. Those things can become idols. Those can become things that distract away from the things that really matter. But on their own, they're not necessarily evil things. Or do you want to make a profit so that you are in a position where you can help people who don't have what they need? Do you want to make a profit so that you can be more generous, so that you can create jobs for others? These would be more other-centered reasons for having that kind of desire. And again, let's just line them up next to each other. There's nothing on that list that you would just be like, that's terrible, you're a terrible person if you do that. But how do you weigh them out? And let's be honest with each other. Let's be really honest. We are really great about lying to ourselves. We might look at the column on the right and say, that's why I'm doing these things. 
but we may not be being very honest with ourselves, and it could be the column on the left that's really driving us. And so James is saying, like, when you have these desires, move to another city, start a business, and make a profit. Bring God and bring the wisdom of God and the Word of God into that situation. Because it will be very easy, left to your own devices, to convince yourself that you have all these noble intentions. You're going to be able to spend so much more time with your spouse and your kids because you're starting your own business, and then all of a sudden you're working 70, 80 hours a week and you're never home. Because you've got to make the business work. James is saying, if you want to live a mature Christian life, there's a process for bringing God into these situations. And one of those would be just asking yourself, honestly, are you able to be objective about those things? We talked a little bit in the time afterwards last week, we talked about this idea that, you know, there's such a thing as fear of the flesh that we should have a sense of suspicion about ourselves, that our motives are not always clear to us, and that we sometimes convince ourselves that we're doing the right thing the right way for the right reasons, when in reality we want something selfish. And so there's a healthy way to kind of be suspicious about our own desires without necessarily taking a position that all of our desires are automatically evil. Because God wants good things for us. He says, instead of all that, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, if this is what God wants, we'll go and do this. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. He's saying wanting these things and not bringing God into the process is evil. God wants to be deeply involved in this process. And the arrogance is what he's saying, is it's arrogant to do these things without God, to take a a position of, I've got this. I can't tell you how many times I've done that with some pretty big life decisions. You know, I'll, I'll be moving along and just going through life and going through my day and I'll buy a car or something that I need and, you know, it's like right when I sign the lease, you know, my brain goes, did you pray about this? And I'm like, ah. Oh. Ministry decisions, family decisions, life decisions. It's foolish when you have access to the all-powerful creator God of the universe who wants to speak in your life and wants to be involved to live in such a way that we don't even consider consulting him in big decisions about what we do. The problem is not the decision itself in this case, but it's the values that we're using in that decision-making process. So how do I involve God? What are some ways to do that? And considering I want to live a life of maturity. Well, there's a few things from Scripture that we can look at. One is Psalm 119 says that God's word is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. That it's designed to be able to guide us through all kinds of situations and circumstances. It's true as 21st century Americans, the Bible doesn't 
foresee every predicament that we live in and every choice that we have to make in our modern cultural context, but it does give us the principles we need in every scenario, in every case. And to get deep into the Word of God, it can be very challenging. A lot of people say, okay, I want to get into the Word of God, and they start in the book of Genesis, and chapters 1 through 3 are kind of interesting but weird, and then they get into the begats, and you know, it's just like, what is going on here? This is insane. But spending some time coming to Bible studies, talking with people, getting deep into the Word can be a very rewarding process that also really helps you understand human nature. It'll help you understand a great deal about yourself and why there's conflict within you. The Bible says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that we're created in the image of God. It means that we are unique among all of the creations on the earth, that we have a physical component and a spiritual component. It means that we have the ability to love and to be kind and compassion and generous. But it also says that we are fallen, that we have rebelled against God and that has, that has marked us, that has broken us, that we are not what it is that God intended us to be. And so we have all these fine and wonderful and amazing qualities, but we are also desperately selfish, capable of all kinds of evil and tyranny. And so we are a very conflicted people with awesome, incredible potential and attributes, but also deeply broken, insecure, and selfish. You know, I read that description of who we are, and I know that fits exactly what's in my heart. There's good things there, but there's bad things there too, and it's Scripture that explains that. And knowing that about myself and knowing that about everyone else around me changes the way that I think about the world. It lights my path. Prayer, James chapter 1, verse 5 says, if you don't have wisdom... You should ask God and he will give it to you. God wants to help you and guide you in a relational process in connection with him. The beginning of that process is starting a relationship with him. One of the things that the Bible tells us is that we are actually born into this world disconnected from God because of our rebellion, because of the human races, rebellion against God, and that God is knocking at the door of our hearts. He wants to come into our lives, and he wants to connect with us, but that's a decision, that's a choice that he wants us to make. He's not going to force you into a relationship with him, not going to drag you kicking and screaming into his house, but that he's going to present you with options, that you're going to, as you grow and learn, you're going to see the way that the world works. You're going to see how people treat each other. You're going to see what's in your own heart. And he's going to send people into your life to help you, to explain what he is like. And what they're going to tell you is, is that you're sick and that you're broken. And a lot of the sadness and a lot of the pain in your life is the result of the values that you're living. But then they'll tell you that Jesus Christ, who is God, came and dwelt among us. That he lived a life of self-sacrifice, of compassion. He demonstrated for us what it is that we are supposed to be. 
and he was reviled and falsely accused and hung on a cross and tortured to death. And that while he was there, God took the wrath that we deserve for our rebellion, each of us individually, and he poured it out on himself. He took the judgment that we deserve so that we could be reconciled to him. And the path to God, the way to a relationship with God, is not by being a good person and doing good things and earning merits. The path to God, the way a relationship with God happens is by turning to him in faith and saying, I am a broken person and I need you in my life. I cannot do this on my own. The Bible says, as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God. That it is through that act of volition, that act of will, that we choose into our Father's kingdom. But it is through the death of Jesus Christ that that choice is even possible for us. If you want to change your life, if you're looking at the way that you've lived and you're looking at the harm that has been done to you and the harm that you have done to others and you're feeling like, I don't know how to get off of this gerbil wheel of self-destruction, this is the answer according to God. It's a relationship with him. It's bringing him into your life, learning about his word, becoming someone who talks to him in prayer, connects with him and connects with others. That something that we really need if we want to live out our lives for God and if we want to bring God into a, our decision-making process is we need to invite others to give us feedback because we are so good at lying to ourselves. That we literally need people who have the same values and the same desires but they are also broken and they are also incomplete and they are also lying to themselves. But if we come together, we can bring some objectivity into the situation. And if we believe in love and we believe that we're imperfect and we believe that we need help, then we can begin to actually accept help. We can love one another in, enough to actually give real feedback on important life decisions. You know what people don't talk about? They don't talk about marriage they don't talk about raising children, and they don't talk about money. Those are the deepest secrets that we hold from each other, and they are some of the most important things where we can go down roads that create the biggest disasters in our lives. We are taught that talking about the things that matter most and really being real with each other is uncouth and embarrassing and shameful, but that's exactly where we need people to give us some help and some guidance and some objectivity. We need people in our lives who love us enough to encourage us and to admonish us and to point us back to the Word of God. We're devastatingly broken and so self-deceived without this. We should use reason. One way to bring God into your life is to understand the priorities of God and then to think through what is the best way to accomplish what God wants to accomplish. God wants us to love him and love one another. The rule of love 
is simply do what is most loving in other people's lives, the kindest, the most compassionate, the most caring things that you can do, and using that as a guide in your life. God says he is the God of love. And that all the complexities of what we do can be filtered down through that reasoning through of what is most expedient to accomplish God's purpose of love in my life and in the lives of people around me. And finally, it may surprise you to know that one way of understanding God's desires and God's will for your life is to look at how he made you. What are the things that you want? What are the things that you want to do? Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's not a promise to make you wealthy. That's not a promise to make you famous. That's not a promise to make you powerful, because God is the creator of your heart, knows what the true desires of your heart are. It's warmth. It's meaning, it's purpose, it's love, it's connection, it's kindness. Those are the things that will really make you whole, that will really fill you up. But you won't know that until you come into a relationship with God and you're willing to trust that his ways are the ways that we were meant to live. James ends this section with an interesting verse. He says, you know, there, there, we need to bring God into all these decision-making efforts in our lives and that it's very foolish to live according to your own wisdom, according to your own way, and to make these huge life decisions without even considering him. But it's also evil to do nothing. He ends this whole section saying, Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So maybe you're one of those people who are so concerned about doing the right thing that you never do anything. And you're sitting there wringing your hands and you're not a risk taker and you're more on the passive side and you're saying, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And as a result, you never do anything. James is saying that's just as evil as doing the wrong thing. As you balance out your life and you look at all these different areas of love and career and parenting and all these things that matter, action is at the heart of it, moving toward others and sitting back and and taking a position of, I'm not going to move until everything is perfectly clear is not the way that the world works. But if you're steeped in the word of God, steeped in prayer, connected with community, you got a good head on your shoulders and you're thinking through the values that matter here, and you're looking at the desires of your heart and measuring them against what God says, then it's time to move. It's time to act. And don't just sit back and say, well, I don't know what the right thing to do is, so I'm not going to do anything. Because the mature Christian 
is a life of action. There you have the second half of James chapter 4. Thanks, God, again for this chance to be here together. Pray that you'll be with us as we hang out outside and enjoy uh, the fall air. Uh, and pray that we could maybe get into some conversations where we talk about things that are really going on and make use of the rich resource that you've provided us, uh, both in your word and in one another. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.